be able to get together and to praise and to worship the Lord. Now, turn in your Bibles to Exodus and chapter 3. This is literally one of my favourite bits of the Bible. It is a very profound part of the Word. And today is the first of a two-part subsection of our Exodus series where we're going to be focusing on Moses' defining moment in his life, which is the burning bush. I want us to be able to hear these verses. These verses are incredibly powerful. But I think we're only going to be able to hear them if we consider ourselves as candidates for a call of God on our lives. To the degree that we are allowing these verses to stay with the elite people like Moses, the superheroes of the faith, we're not going to be able to hear them for our own lives. So I just want to pause before we really get into the text and go through this verse by verse. And we're only doing 10 verses today, um, but it's, there's, there's so much here, I, I really want to go that slow. But before we go there, I really want to just look generally in Scripture as to what What is the promise of God for each individual Christian with regards to calling an encounter with God? If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, can you expect to encounter God in a way that redefines your life and sets you off on a new direction in his purposes? So I'm calling this the call of God, if this is going to work for me. Yes, it is. The call of God... The moment that we can meet with God and be redefined. The Bible says, Ephesians 4 verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportions it. I love that, those verses. Just beautiful. We believe this, don't we? There is one body. There is one spirit. And it says, we believe that, just as you were called into one hope. When you were called. We believe there is one Lord. We believe there is one faith. We believe there is one baptism. We we believe there is one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. We believe all that right? Then we have to believe that to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportions it. And we have to believe that we are those who the Bible considers to be the called ones. You can't believe half of it and not the other half. You are a called people. God has called to your life. And he's given you grace which is specific to you that you are to use in your own life. I'll give you another verse. This is Romans 8 and verse 28. Often, I think, misquoted. But it says this, We know that in all things God works for good with those who love him. For those who have been called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. Often that says, we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. It's often quoted. 
that way. But actually, I think a better rendering is that God is always working for good with those who love him. It's tricky in the Greek. But I think that's a better rendering. Because you know what? God is always working for good. Always working for good. He's always looking to bring good out of any situation, no matter how disastrous, no matter how bleak, no matter how much it looks like it's got the enemy's fingerprints all over it. God will work in any situation for good with those who love him. Because you are called according to his purposes. There is something invested in the calling of your life which allows you to partner with God to bring good out of any situation, no matter how dark it might be. But let's not make any mistake. We are called according to his purpose. Do you love him? Yes. Then let's accept the other part of the verse. We're called according to his purposes. Let's give you another one. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Each of you should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you, just as God has called you. I love this. Whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. So that means you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to leave your family. You don't have to fly to some remote developing country to encounter God and to believe that you've got a call of God on your life. God has called you to your situation. I love that. That's a relief, isn't it? (laughs) He might call you out out of what you're doing now into something new, but right now he's called you to be the person, his person, in your situation. As a mum, as an employee, as a boss, as a son or a daughter, as a grandfather, as a friend, as a neighbour in my street. This verse says you are to live as a believer in your situation because it is to that that you have been called. So we don't need to consider the call of God to be something which is over and above what is the normal context of our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. You know, sometimes this this word to, to be called can always seem a little bit clerical. You know, that it's for for a few people that are set apart for a certain purpose. You know, historically, those who have been called to the ministry. You've got that scene in Sister Act. I don't know if you've seen that, where they sat around the table. And they said, so when did you receive your call? And she's like, what call? Um, This is Whoopi Goldberg. What call? Oh, the call, the call. Do you remember that bit in the film? I think some people still think of it in those ways. That there's a few people that are called. And, you know, you've got to be in a convent or something in order to follow it. But... It's certainly not what the scripture says to me. So you have a calling on your life. You have a calling on your life. God has called to you as an individual. When you chose to follow Jesus, and he said, come follow me, in however way that came out in your life, and you, in your heart, agreed to commit your life to follow Jesus, it involved a specific calling in your life, into the purposes that God has called you into. There were purposes at that moment that were ascribed to your life and grace given in order to fulfill those purposes. And it starts in the context that we find ourselves in. So I want to ask you a question before we go any further. What is the call of God on your life at the moment? Why don't you you turn to the person next to you and just see if you can articulate what is the call of God on your life at the moment according to your situation? 
Come on, you can have like a minute and a half for this. It's not going to be long. Feel like, do you feel like you've been able to explain something of the call of God on your life? Well, I believe that Jesus is going to make us good, better, better people and better people that we live with and, and good and peace and harmony. There'll be no more wars and no more poverty and things and no more destruction and no more. There's a man with a big vision. Did you hear all that? Love it. Love it. Love it. You've got to have a big, hairy, audacious goal in life. And that is Jesus' one right there. He's going to end all wars. He's going to bring us through to a place of peace, love and harmony where we're going to love God. We're going to love our fellow man. Amen, brother. Wonderful. Well, let's read our verses for today. So you're already in Exodus in chapter 3 and we're going to just read verses 1 to 10. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvellous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land, to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, and the Marmite. (laughs) Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. 
so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Amazing bit of scripture there. I did elaborate on one very small part. So, we're going to, this is laid out in a way that, for me, you've just got to go through it verse by verse. There are some clear principles here to understanding how to encounter God and how God calls people into his purposes. So verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So what was Moses doing when he encountered God? Anyone? He was in his situation. He was doing what he did. He was looking after his father-in-law's flock. He was doing the normal thing. Actually, some, some translation says Moses was still shepherding. Not just Moses was looking after his father's flock. Still shepherding. Still pastoring the flock of his father, Jethro. There's a sense that he's been doing it for a long time. And we know that in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, that it's 40 years he's been pastoring this flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Clearly God wanted to make a shepherd out of him. He wanted to move Moses away from being the Egyptian prince and establish him in the life of a shepherd. Psalm 77 verse 20 said, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. It's amazing. God wanted someone who was willing to go the extra mile for looking after somebody else's sheep. They're not even his own sheep. But for 40 years, he's been learning to keep these sheep alive in a desert. So that's the first thing. When God wants to call you out of your present situation and into something new, he can get your attention, even while you're busy getting on with the thing that you do, whatever it is that is your context. Even when you're immersed in normal daily life, you don't have to be set apart in a two-week silent fasting retreat in order to hear from God and in order for God to redirect you in some way into something new. God can confront us whenever he likes and he knows how to get his attention but it happens in his timing and it happens in his way. You you may sense even today that God has something else for you to do. You, You might be frustrated in your present situation But know that God can and will get your attention and call you forward when it is time. And sometimes we have to be patient. Just remember, God's not in a hurry, even if we are. Remember at Christmas time, we talked about God's time. You hear at Carol's by candlelight, we talked about how long God is willing to wait sometimes to to get to the point where his purposes are ready to be fulfilled. This story reveals again and again how God intentionally leads his people through periods of probation, through undeclared discipline and training. You know, we we would love a story where the people come out of out of Egypt and within a year they're established in the promised land. But there's a great big forty-year time gap because the people aren't ready. God needs to train us sometimes. And Moses had no clue that those 40 seemingly wasted years in hiding were actually tailor-made training for his primary calling. To be a shepherd of someone else's flock 
through harsh desert conditions. And God is doing the same with all of us, I believe. Preparing us, equipping us, honing our characters for future purposes. I want to say that nothing is wasted in the training of God. Nothing in your life is beyond God's training plan. Even that person you don't like at work, God can use that person to work on your character. It's use, he, they're useful in shaping you. Or that bout of ill health, or that drop in your income, he can use it all to forge us into the people he's created us to be. That said, in this story, it seems to me that Moses has gone further with his flock than normal. It says he went to the mountain of God. And it may well be that even in, a, in that time, in that culture in Midian, there was something about that mountain that the people in that culture knew. That was a, a sacred and special place. It was called the mountain of God. Horeb, also called Sinai, same mountain, in different places in scripture. He may well have been seeking God, specifically. He may well have gone there, because it was an awfully long way to drive this flock of sheep. But he, he may well have said, right, I'm going. And he brought his sheep with him. He, he headed for the mountain of God, the sacred mountain. It's not stretching the text to say that he seems to be willing to go the extra mile in pursuit of God. So what does this tell us? We are always rewarded for going the extra mile, intentionally seeking an audience with God. Amen. I, I don't believe God ever turns us away in those moments. It may not be the kind of experience that we are looking for. God isn't just going to give us the exact encounter that we're looking for when we go pursuing God in some way, when we set aside time to intentionally pursue God. It's never going to look like what we expect, but if we're open to the Lord and we're hungry for an encounter with God, I believe God honours that when we go the extra mile in pursuit of God. <coughs> so Horeb is this place of seeking. It's a place of humility. It's a, it's a place of pursuit of God's presence. It's also a place of conversion and redirection throughout the scriptures. You've got here in chapter 3, you've got again in verse 19, where the people of God are sort of camped around the mountain and God gives them the Ten Commandments and shows them how to live. You've got it again in uh, 1 Kings 19, where Elijah heads for the mountain of God because he's, he's wanting to run all that way to seek an audience with God. He wants to meet with God on the mountain and it's at that point that God redirects his life into the next chapter of his life. It's a place of conversion. <coughs> so we all need to intentionally seek Horeb time sometimes. Yeah. If it's been a long time since you've felt you've had an encounter with God, maybe pray about how this year you can intentionally pursue a fresh encounter with a living God. Especially if we sense that God might be redirecting us in some way. That where, we're, where we are in our situation, in our lives, can't stay the same. But we've got a sense of being pushed out into something new. Let's read verse 2 together. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, but the bush was not consumed. The angel of the Lord, what does that mean? The angel of the Lord appears a few times throughout scripture, and it's not really, when you hear that this is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord speaks in the first person. 
It's not someone who speaks on behalf of God and delivers a message like Gabriel. This idea of the angel of the Lord is like a, a, a manifestation in some way of the presence of God. It's like God shows up in some way to connect with his people. So this isn't a created angel. This is an uncreated manifestation of the presence of God. A special visitation. It, often considered as a pre-incarnate encounter with the Spirit of Christ. If you think about it, it's really similar to Paul's, the Apostle Paul's encounter of Jesus on the, the Damascus Road, where all of a sudden there was a blinding light, and he hears this voice saying, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? You've got the repetition of the first name. It's a similar thing, an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus that was. The symbolism here is so rich. Here we've got something extraordinary. We've got this flame that is nourished by its own life. It's, it doesn't need any other fuel to feed it. It's a truly living flame. This is how God wants to introduce himself to Moses. As a source and a sustainer of life. Alec Motya, he's the author of a great commentary, he says this about the burning bush. He says, it communicates that God is a self-maintaining, self-sufficient reality that does not need to draw vitality from the outside. He is the source of life and not a consumer of it. I love that. That is how God introduces himself in this moment. Yet this holy living fire rests upon a humble little desert bush. Does that not speak of the God that we worship? It's, a, it's such an eloquent picture. I want us just to pause to see the wonder of this. The glory of God, happy to rest upon the ordinary. It was a perfect metaphor for a God, what God wanted to do with Moses. To take a humble, ordinary, desert-hardy man and to cause the sustaining presence of the living God to rest upon him for the next chapter of his life. That's what it means to be an, a called, anointing servant of God, to be ordinary carriers of his extraordinary presence. It's a stunning picture of what would later be fully explained in Jesus. An ordinary man, just with the presence of God resting upon him. And then at Pentecost, tongues of fire, upon this ordinary rabble of fishermen and tax collectors, and yet the fire of God comes and rests upon them. And after that, there's a tremendous sense of the presence of God that rests upon each of them as they carry his presence and his purposes out into the world. I want to be a burning bush. I really want to be a burning bush. I, I, I don't want to be a mighty, impressive oak tree with no fire. I'd much rather be a, an ordinary little bush, but clothed in the power and the life and the grace and the presence of God than be something impressive but with no fire. Yeah. I want to lead a church of burning bushes, of ordinary everyday people, people that are just easy to connect with, that are familiar, and yet there's something about them that when you spend time with people that are clothed in the power of God, you feel like you come close to God and you begin to encounter God in a fresh way and you come away from that person feeling full of faith and like the purposes of my life have just been opened. I want to be like that. 
I want you all to be like that. We're not looking for mighty, impressive, superhero, oak tree people. We're looking for humble desert bushes that know what it is to burn with the fire of God. Amen? Amen. The rest of, from verse 10 onwards, in this chapter, in chapter 3, and for most of chapter 4, Moses spends most of his time saying, but I'm just a bush, pretty much. That's like a summary of what he says. Just complaining that all I am is this withered old desert guy. And actually, God spends that whole time trying to explain to him, yes, but my presence is going to be upon you. To the point where it's really difficult to work out where Moses finishes and God begins. They're intrinsically linked. You can imagine this fire around, just swirling in and out of the bush. To the point where it's impossible to explain. Is it God that brought the people out of Egypt? Or is it Moses that brought the people out of Egypt? Which is it? Well, both is true. But Moses is still the humble desert bush that he's always been. He's just endued with the power and the presence of God. That's two verses, I'd better speed up. Verse 3. It's good stuff though, isn't it? This is important. That's two verses, but God is just able to speak to us through these. Verse 3. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvellous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. Simply, this spoke to me about that Moses is curious. He responds quickly with what he sees. He's, he's not at all cynical. He doesn't say, ah, oh, you know, Bush, I wonder what that's about, but then just carries on on his day. He wants to know what it's about, so he turns aside to look deeper. I don't know about you, but I think that takes a certain sort of disposition to be one who turns aside and looks deeper when God gets your attention. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, Moses' context, Moses' normal thing that he was doing in life, looking after this, his sheep, was actually quite slow-paced and relaxed. He probably had an awful lot of contemplation time. Uh, doing that job. Your job might be different. I imagine it probably is a little bit quicker and more consuming than shepherding. Although shepherding can be quite full on depending on where you are. But yeah, sometimes we're so busy getting on with what we're doing in the day and being productive that it's very difficult to, to be able to stop and give your attention to something God might be showing you in the day. That's kind of what we spent all of last year looking at. It's always inconvenient to pause and give God your full attention. And we've got to embrace that. It's going to be inconvenient, but we need to be predisposed with a hunger for God that calls us to stop what we're doing and to pursue further when we sense that God has got our attention with something. Don't just move on until you've had a little encounter with God and worked out what that was all about. It's so easy to pass by opportunities to encounter God. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look... So what was God looking for? He was looking for that moment where he'd been willing to turn aside and to give God his full attention. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And then he said, here I am. God calls him by name twice. This is actually quite typical of Hebrew literature. He does it with Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 11. He does it with Jacob 
in Genesis 46 verse 2. He does it with Samuel. You know the little boy Samuel who's asleep in the temple? Samuel, Samuel. He gets up and goes to see Eli. Eli's like, I didn't call you, go back to bed. You know that story? I've heard of that story before, yes. Samuel, Samuel. He repeats the name twice. And Paul on the Damascus Road, we already mentioned that. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I love this repetition of the name. It's like he's been really specific. Moses, I'm calling you. He didn't just stand and throw out an invitation to a crowd. Who is willing to come with me on a big jaunt to see Pharaoh and see if we can release the people from Egypt? Who's up for it? It wasn't quite like that. It was specific to Moses. He wanted to get his attention. He wanted Moses to hear his name called into the purpose. That's really important. Because Moses had to be called as Moses. He had to be called as the man that was in hiding. He had to be called as the man who was over 80. He had to be called as the man who has once been a murderer. He had to be called with his stutter as, his, as the way that he speaks. We need to be called by our name. Because in our name carries who we are. It is our specific makeup of skills and attributes and strengths, but also weaknesses and flaws and failures and regrets. Just as we are. When God calls to your life, allow him to call you by your name. Allow him to meet you just as you are. Don't try and present any, anything that is uh, more acceptable in your mind to God. But allow God to call you, even in your frailty. The things that God wants to, to do with you are specific to you. So we must accept that. He doesn't have a better person for what he wants to do with me. God actually does not have a better person for what he wants to do with you. He has tailored you in many ways for what he wants to do with you. You've been through training. You've been through undeclared discipline and probation for what he wants you to do. He will use everything that he has taught you thus far for what he wants you to do in the future. So he calls us by name. And I believe that repetition is about saying, this is important. I'm calling you specifically. Let's look at verse 5. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's just kind of brimming with that sense of awe and holiness. Those verses, I love it. These, these next few verses are all about encounter, what it's like to encounter the presence of God. The important thing to notice here is God wants Moses to be able to stand on holy ground. He doesn't say, Moses, go away. Come back when you're ready to stand on holy ground. He just says, Moses, I want you to do a simple thing for me. Remove your shoes because I want you to stand here. He wants to enable <coughs> Moses to stand on holy ground. He says, take your shoes off, and for now you've come close enough. He does actually get a lot closer to God, doesn't he? He, he actually learns to, to speak with God face to face, very, very close. Listen to this from Exodus 33.10. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, that is the tent of meeting, 
they all stood and worshipped at the entrances to their tents. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. So Moses does get a lot closer than he is right now at this point with the burning bush. Right now God says you've come far enough. I can't bring you any closer at this point. But I can speak to you where you are. Now take off your shoes because we're going to have a conversation. How many of you know that there is a level of closeness with God coming that we haven't even begun to understand yet? God wants to bring you right into his intimate presence where you will talk to him face to face. One day everything that separates us and keeps, keeps us at arm's length in any way will be removed. But even in the course of our lives, God wants to, God, us to learn how to come closer. To talk with God as a, as a person speaks with their friend. Moses had no idea how close he would get to the Lord. But for now, God says to Moses, stay where you are, take your shoes off. This is what you need to do right now in order to stand in my holy presence and advance in my calling on your life. Why take off his sandals? Well... There's a number of interpretations as to why the sandals may be. It could be a, a cultural mark of respect. It still is in many places in the world today to take off your shoes at the door in order to come in. Um, it's, it's a respect for that sacred environment. You know, you, it's a Middle Eastern thing that goes way back to, to these times. It's a cultural thing that, that Moses would have understood about. It's, it's still used in mosques and things today where you take off your shoes in order to enter. So it could just be a cultural thing, a cultural mark of respect and honouring of this place which is filled with God's presence. Going a little bit deeper, is there a spiritual interpretation here? Is it a removal of that which has been defiled by too much contact with the earth? To throw away the sin that has clung to you. It's inappropriate in my presence. There's a few things you need to throw away and cast aside if you're going to stand in my presence and have an audience with me. Maybe it's that. Going deeper still, and this is the interpretation I really like, it's a simple opportunity to obey God and to come near with respect and an honour for who God is. Moses was given the opportunity to express his desire to be with God. Something to do, some way to express it. And to honour him according to his word. It's not a formula or a religious ritual. It's a way of beginning a new relationship. God says, you want to come close to me? I just want to ask you to do something. Take off your shoes. Moses then has an opportunity to say, God, I'm on it. Take your shoes off. I want to be here. I want to be with you. I think that is the deepest interpretation of what is going on here. And it's funny. When God meets with people, and God causes people to follow him in a fresh way in their lives, he often says completely different things to them. It's not just one thing that he asks people to do. To Adam, he says, you can eat whatever you like, but not that tree. And that was the beginning of a relationship. To Abraham, he said, come outside and look at the stars. Abraham could have stayed in his tent, but he didn't. He came out and he looked at the stars. To Jacob, he says... Fight me, I dare you. That's crazy. God picked a fight with him. He could have said, no, I'm not for it today. Got a bit of a bad hip. No, he said that afterwards. <laughs> but he didn't. He said, all right, I'm up for it. He took him on. Jeremiah, he said, right, open your eyes, tell me what you see. It's like catchphrase. Say what you see. 
That, that was his beginning of a new relationship. And God says, okay, I'll use that. You're, 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 you're speaking honestly. Let's go. You're going to be my prophet. To Daniel and Ezekiel, he said, stand up. Because they were so on their awe in the presence of this person who is the angel of the Lord. They were flat on their faces and they had to stand up in order to hear God. But they didn't have to stand up, but they did. They chose to stand up and hear what God had to say to them. To the disciples, he said, follow me. They dropped their nets. They went. They didn't have to. They could have stayed as fishermen on the edge of Galilee, but they didn't. They dropped their nets and they went. It was a, just a, an act of obedience. Let's, let's go. To others, he said, sell your possessions. That's a bit harder, isn't it? To some, he said, tell everyone God is, what God has done for you. Go back to your village and tell everyone what God has done for you. To some, he said, tell a priest what God has done for you. To some, he said, tell no one about anything that has happened to you. To Paul, he said, get up, go into the city and wait for further instructions. What's my point? My point is that God can ask you to do anything in order to help you to stand in his presence and to advance in the purposes in your life. Yeah. It's not one size fits all. Yeah. We don't all have to take our shoes off to be in the presence of God. He might ask you to do that, but he might ask you to do something completely different. He wants to deepen the relationship and he wants to give us opportunities to do things in order to come in line with his will. To me, he said all sorts of things. One time, and I've told you about this before, I know, he said, pull your motorbike to the side of the road. Another time in February 2000, he said, get up and come outside. Both times were a bit like inner audible voices that have shaped my life. Another time he said, stop smoking. That wasn't the same. It wasn't like the other two times at all, um, but it was an understanding in my heart. You can't come any closer and be able to stand unashamed in my presence until you deal with that habit. I just had a sense in prayer. Whenever I came to prayer, it came up. I felt guilty about it. It was a prick in my conscience. I'm not saying that's the same for all of you. You can't approach God if you're still smoking. I'm not saying that. I'm saying for me, that was important. God wanted me to get rid of that and to kick it in order to, for me to be able to come and stand in his presence and, and move to a new level of intimacy with God. Just recently, someone told me how God clearly said to them, I want you to get rid of your tablet, your iPad. Stop watching Netflix all the time and come and be with me. You can't be in, in my presence until you get rid of that thing. So this person gave it to me. Not with the charger. <laughs> they just, they wanted to respond to this sense in God that, that God was saying, you're watching way too much of this stuff. Yeah. You, you used to come to me intimately all the time. Now you're not. You're just addicted to, you know that thing where it says the next program is up in seven, eight, seven <laughs> seconds or whatever, and then it counts down and you think, no, I better not watch another one. Ooh, what? this is starting already. <laughs> and it doesn't start with the opening credits. It starts with an exciting next scene, doesn't it? Oh, it's really difficult. Well, this person was a bit hooked, and so they were saying, actually, I haven't spent nearly as much time with God in the last few months as I had since I got this thing. And so, as a discipline, they came and said, look, I'm presenting you with my iPad. God has told me I must give it to you. And I'm like, thanks, for a time, and there's no charger. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's, that's doing what, you, what God asks you to do. That's responding in relationship to a God who wants you to learn to stand in his presence and to sustain life in communion with him. 
And there's something about that simple act of obedience that immediately brings us close and opens us up to the Word of God in a fresh way. Do you see, when someone get, when God gets your attention and invites you to stand in His presence in a special way, He will ask something of you, often. Yeah. And He gives you the opportunity to respond in respect and in love and in obedience. So has God asked something of you recently? What was the last thing that God asked of you? in order to come deeper in relationship with him. Can you think of anything? I can think of one thing. God asked me to try to be as helpful as I can, do most of the cleaning or dusting or yeah. cleaning or hearing my room or Thank just you. do things like that, carpeting. Cool. Hold that thought. Think about that during this week. The rest of you might just have some thoughts about what God has, has asked you to do in order to come close. <coughs> Why don't we pray about that this week? How can I do that? How can I respond? Because I want to tell you that on the other side of that act of obedience is a greater intimacy with God. And possibly a key to purposes that are going to unfold in your life where God has now got your attention to the degree that he can tell you something about what's happening next. But first you've got to do that thing, whatever it is. So if God has asked you to do something recently in the words of Nike, just do it. <laughs> Just do it. For those who can't think of anything that he's asked of us, if there was something, would you want to know? If there was something that God wanted you to remove from your life in order to facilitate greater intimacy, would you want to know? Are you still hungry for the, his presence and his call on your life more than anything else? That's worth considering, right? Pray about that this week. Let's go to verse 6. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So he started by introducing himself as, I am the God of your father. We know that his father was called Amram. In chapter 6 and verse 20 we learn that. He was a man of faith. How do you know that? Hebrews 11 says that he was one of the champions of faith. <coughs> Hebrews 11 is full of champions of faith. It's all the people that God uh, has used. It's like the, the hall of fame of faith, Hebrews 11. And Moses' dad is in there as, as a, a, a man of God. It says in verse 23, It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They were not afraid of the king's command. So it's not just his mum that we read about. In, in Exodus chapter 2. It's his dad, is all part of this, of concealing his son, and uh, in faith, committing him to God, and, and part of that whole plan to send him out on the river. So his father was a man of faith. But God doesn't just identify himself to Moses as the God of his biological family. He identifies himself to Moses personally as the God of the stories of the past. And in doing so, he establishes Moses in the lineage of the people of faith and blessing. Now, I don't know what your parents were like. Your parents may have been incredible champions of faith. And I hope they were, because they're precious. Your grandparents may have been so. Or they may not. But when it comes to our, our heritage in God, the biblical characters can become like our parents in the faith. 
By faith we are true children of Abraham, born again into the same lineage of faith. We are the next generation of the great family of God. And their victories are our victories. They are passed on to us and established in like our spiritual DNA. And we can draw from their wisdom and their courage and their experiential truth and find that it's there in us, like a well in the soul that we can draw from whenever we need to. You don't need to come from a long line of faith superheroes in your biological family. You just need to identify that your father is the very same father as the people in the Bible. And you need to be willing to learn the ways of the family of faith. So he calls to us all. The God who was faithful to Abraham when he left God to fo- left all he knew to f- follow God and to follow his purposes. He calls to us as the God who saved Isaac from death even at the very last minute. Do you sometimes hate the way God is quite last minute? <laughs> like when you've used up all of your natural faith reserves and you're thinking God's really not going to come through. It's always at that moment that God does it. He's that God. He's the God of Isaac who saves us at the last minute. He's faithful to his promises, even when it doesn't feel like it. He's the God of Jacob who can take the unpromising material of our lives and transform it. He was a schemer and a swindler. He's the God as, he's this God of Moses as well, who can take a withered desert murderer and make him a deliverer. Amazing. As Moses realised this was an audience with that God, he hid his face. This is another beautiful thing, just like the burning bush which is full of symbolism. This is, he hid his face, he just, I love this picture. I don't know how, how better you could describe What it's like for a fallen, flawed human being to suddenly realise they're standing in the presence of God and have God reach beyond their natural senses to the heart in a profound way. It says that he hid his face. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this. Elijah did. Elijah encountered God in this way. Do you remember when I said that Elijah met God on this very same mountain, on Horeb, in 1 Kings 19. This is what happened. He was terrified and he was running away from Jezebel, who he thought was going to murder him. And he made his way to Horeb and he just held out in a cave. And he felt he was the last prophet left on the earth. And then he sensed that he needed to speak with God, that God wanted to speak with him. And so God asked him to to go and stand at the entrance to the cave because God was going to pass by. And then there was this powerful earthquake, and Elijah just waits. Then there's this forest fire that sweeps across the mountain, and Elijah just watches. Then comes, and there's a, there's a wind that tore the rocks apart as well, and Elijah watches that. Then comes this gentle whisper, full of the presence of God. And what does Elijah do? He pulls his cloak over his face and stands in the presence of God, ready for a new conversation. God, with all that sensory stuff going on, the big wind, the earthquake, the fire, it's all like some dramatic Hollywood movie, and Elijah stands there unimpressed. He's not met with God yet. 
And yet when the still whisper comes, which is just pregnant with the power of God, it just carries with it an essence of God's presence flooding into his life. It bypasses all his physical senses and it hits him straight in the heart. And at that point, he doesn't need his eyes or his ears or anything anymore because God is reaching and speaking right into the center of his soul. And he stands there as a humble man, just overwhelmed by the holiness of God's presence. And he can't bear to look because he, he knows he's a sinful human man. And yet God has reached him deep within. Have you ever encountered anything like that? And I'm not talking about caves and earthquakes. Have you, have you been at that point where God has just spoken to your heart where you no longer need your eyes and you, you're not even aware of anything around you? God has reached in and he's begun to speak to your heart. I hope you've had encounters like that where God has met you in that way. But you know what? If, if you haven't experienced that, ask him for it. Because God loves to bring all of us to that point where he can speak directly as deep calls to deep. To the, the deep part of God just reaches into the deep part of us. And it might just be in a gentle, still, small whisper, but we know it when we hear it. Love it. It's a picture of a man, a simple man, before God. Suddenly, there's this contrast between when Moses sees the burning bush and he just runs over almost to play with it, He's curious, like a child, to this point where now Moses realises what he's dealing with here and who he's dealing with here. And it hits him deeply in the heart. And he's, he's a reverent man before God. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, Israel, who are in Egypt. And I have, come, I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So he's saying, Moses, you surely need to know that I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I am aware of their suffering. This is not something you need to show me. So whenever we're gripped with something that is just not as it should be, when we're, when we're touched by the injustice of something, or we see that there's something that ought not to be, just know that we always, we're always standing looking at that thing together with God. We don't need to inform God of the suffering of this world. He is already well aware of what it is that we see and what it is that we're facing. We look at the wrong things in this world together with God. He already knows it all. Even before that prayer is on our lips, he knows it. That empowers us to be able to deal with things, ugly things, hard things, things that don't shift easily, things that, that, that are bitter to us, things that we see on the news. It allows us to stand alongside God and know that God sees this in much more detail than I do. So our prayers are in solidarity with a compassionate God. Does that make sense? We're not trying to stir up God to care about the situation. He's already there. He's way, way ahead of us. I love that. Verse 8. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of all the tribes, and not Marmite. This what I want to pull out of here. It says, I have come down that I may bring them up. Often it says, God brought them up from Egypt to the promised land. It's a common phrase throughout the Mosaic literature. God brought them up out of Egypt. 
It's a profound statement. God condescends. God comes down in order to elevate people out of their slavery and brokenness into freedom and wholeness. Is that not just his nature? That's what our God is all about. It's like a summary of the life of Christ. That he humbly comes down, low-born, willing to be born in a stable, lives a servant life, dies a criminal's death, that he might elevate the earth from its slavery into wholeness and freedom. Is that not what God is asking Moses to do as well? To be willing to serve God well out of his comfort zone, with great personal discomfort to elevate a suffering people. Will not every call of God be characterised in this way? I want to put it to you. That if you want to really walk in the purposes of God, it's going to result in discomfort. It's going to result in personal sacrifice. It's going to result in you being abased so that others can be raised up. Paul said, I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's what raises people up. And then he said, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to share in the the self-denial and personal sacrifice of Jesus. You can't have one without the other. God condescends, scoops down to pick up broken humanity and to raise it into a new place. And that's what he asks us to do with him. So can we say that? If God were to say to you today, I'm giving you an open invitation to get to know me. You can fully experience my joy, my power, my goodness. You can get to see a whole lot of people get free. But if you accept the invitation, you will have to share in my suffering along the way. What do you say? Are you up for that? Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a thing to do with trembling, I think. Verse 9 and 10 basically says that I have seen it all. It breaks my heart. And therefore, I want you to go and confront Pharaoh yourself. And I want you to rescue them all. Let's just be really clear about this. What God asks him to do is terrifying. It's extremely difficult. It requires that Moses faces demands that he's never experienced before. The vision was full of the unknown. Because it would have been a very different situation to the one that he left 40 years ago. All the elders of that 40 years ago time would have died. So that, I'm talking about the Egyptian elite, also the Hebrew elders as well. He'd be working with an unknown bunch of people that didn't know him, didn't know what he was about. And he'd almost certainly have no influence when he went back. He was asked to accept the call to be one man against a superpower. A task he'd already failed in 40 years previous. (coughs) What a thing to be asked to do. So what does this tell us? When God calls you to work alongside him in any way, it doesn't matter if you're intimidated by the thought. It doesn't matter if you're woefully inadequate to even begin to achieve the vision. It doesn't matter if you haven't done anything like it before. And it doesn't matter if the prospect is full of unknowns. It doesn't matter if you have no real influence in the situation. And it doesn't matter if you've failed it several times before. It doesn't matter. God can call you anyway. Does anyone feel like they're running out of excuses? <laughs> the works of God will always be bigger than we are. Amen. Always beyond us. That's why God will never, ever ask you to do a mighty work for him. He will never ask you to do a mighty work for him. 
He will only ever ask any of us to do a mighty work with him. You and I are just a bush. He's the one that supplies the burning. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to pray. What I feel like we need is some fresh faith. Fresh faith for what God might want to do in us, through us, with us. Because we're only going to pursue him. We're only going to do what Moses did and go the extra mile and seek an encounter with God. If we believe, if God gives us the faith that when we encounter God, it will make a huge difference. An openness to God's invitation and a call into his purposes. Lord, I want to pray for each person here. Father, I want to pray for fresh faith. Amen. Amen. I want to pray that there be a sense of an open invitation. Amen. I, want to be, I want to pray that we'd have faith that we are, are called, even in the situation we're in right now. Amen. A deep sense of the call of God. That you have purposes that we haven't thought about yet. We haven't dreamed about yet. You have purposes and dreams for our lives that are different to what our lives look like right now. And they're to be released and they're to be encountered through that intimate relationship with you. Where you might ask us to do a few things, to to get rid of a few things, to cause us to come close and to learn how to stand on holy ground again before you. Father, we want to be those who, though we are painfully aware of who we are, we hear you call us by name, just as we are. That you don't look for somebody else. Lord, there is no better person for what you've planned for us to do. I pray that we'd be willing to be like burning bushes, open to the fire of God once again. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek you, as we're open to you, as we commit ourselves to, to turning aside when you get our attention, I pray, Father God, that you would teach us how to carry your fire that living flame, that sense of the heavy presence of God that goes with us, that makes all the difference, that with you we might do things that are way beyond our natural capacity. We might touch lives in a way that we couldn't do so naturally. But instead, the, the wonderful fire of your living presence would be able to go forth and touch other people. And other people would find that by spending time with us, they get closer to you.